0: I can't come here and die. I can't come here and live all this shit on my mind. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Working paid me in time. My brain just ripping my mood. O2 just caught off my life. Hi, guys, and welcome to the Echo Chamber.
1: I'm Jade and I'm Ez. And today we're joined by a really special guest. This is someone that I've known technically since I was about 11. (laughs) She's the first person that came to mind when I started to have conversations with myself about allyship and started to think really deeply about allyship actually because I have a small group, a small circle of friends who are People that show up in the world as as white, um, not all of them are from the United Kingdom or or from Europe. Not all of them are, quote-unquote, ethnically white. So I started to think about them a lot as this situation began to unfold. And I started to think a lot about allyship. But actually, somebody who isn't directly in my circle was the first person that I thought about. And I have so much respect for her. I spend time with her more so when there's, like the wider group of us doing things so it's a birthday or something like that and so it's not often that I sit down and speak to her but from childhood or from our teenage years up to now I've always had yeah the same level of respect um, and I've always been really interested in in her journey um, and her thoughts and opinions and the way she navigates the world as a white woman. So we have Rebecca today.
2: <laughs> I was so that not embarrassing, but oh <laughs> I hate you when people like compliment me or say nice things about I me. Mean. I find it really awkward, but that what? was very flattering. I was very flattered that you said I was one of the first people that you thought of in this kind of way. So mm. I'm really happy to be here.
1: No, thank you for being here. This sort of conversation isn't necessarily an easy one. Yeah, it isn't necessarily an easy one. So, yeah, we're really, really grateful. Opening question, who were the first allies and who were the first ops that you lot
0: identified? as do you want to go first? I knew you was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you're on the screen. <laughs> I knew you was going to say that. When we came up with this question, I was thinking it's a difficult question for me because I'm able to identify why people that I fucked with in primary school that I, yeah that, that I just I just liked so like my best friend in primary school was a white girl called Anne-Marie mm. and um, I actually didn't think of her I thought of her mum who's late now rest her soul Noreen she was from a very that like, white working class Irish family and Noreen was just so like in primary school, I just spent so much time in their home. And now, like, as an adult with many godchildren, children, understanding what it is to look after one child for the weekend, for example, I understand how much money goes into that, how much time, how much effort. So they would, like, on the Friday after school, they'd all get, like, a treat. I would be getting the same treat as them. Just, like, little things that a Noreen would do. And as, as I've grown into my womanhood have really kind of really learned to appreciate and value the level of that investment and time, and I just felt so at home in their home, felt so welcome, I was like at all their family functions like it was deep in it, it was deep and Noreen was she was a real one. That being said, I don't know her views, I don't know her politics, I don't know her understanding of race I actually coming into her like adulthood and looking at the world in a racialized way or teenagehood more and looking at the world from a more racialized standpoint the other week um, I had to delete someone off Facebook and it was really it was really sad to delete this person because again similar I'd known her from primary school and so, even like socially, there's some overlap in our circles. So, I kind of see, still see her about, kind of. And she was just putting up some shocking things. And it was really, really sad to see that. So, when you ask, so yeah, to ask in terms of identifying my first ally, what I could, I, somebody that I could identify as, okay, you are on board with the fight to racial justice, that didn't occur until um, very, a lot later. So, um, the person that I'm thinking of is someone that I worked with. Her name's Pop Poppy. She's ginger. I'm I'm only saying that because I know that she would want the world to know she's very proud of being ginger. She's gonna listen to this and be happy. But anyway, <laughs> Poppy, Poppy was just she's just a real one. And that being said, um, it's not that Poppy and I haven't had difficult conversations. It's not that Poppy always has got it right. It's not that there's not been points where I've had to kind of challenge or question. Um. Some of her ideas or understandings of race or interactions with race, Um, but um, what what, why I would identify her as an ally is because she has always listened. Um, She's always listened. She's always listened. She's always sought to understand. She's always created space. And, and, and again, I think a lot of that comes from kind of her Marxist understanding or view of the world, very kind of socialist background. So it's not just about race, but she's very much like in her every area or every aspect of her life, kind of champions the rights of human beings and people. Um. So, yeah. So, yeah, in terms of like my first ally, it's difficult because there are like, there are people, white people that I've grown up with or know that I can say yeah, like they would, they, they, they ac- I felt accepted by them as a, as a Black person, um, but I don't necessarily know if I would identify or call them an ally. Um, Poppy is the first person that I can say, yeah, um, she, she's an ally, actively. My first op, again, interesting question, because I thought back to certain encounters that I've had as a very young child I don't know if I was treated in certain ways because of my race. Now, growing up, I'm thinking mm, that might have had something to do with the fact that I was black. Definitely, the school that I went to, which I will name and shame, the same Union, was the first secondary school that I went to. Which, like, interestingly, I went into secondary school with top grades. I went into secondary school a very high achiever. Um, I went. I had no kind of no deep behavioural concerns in primary school, despite a lot of the trauma that I had experienced in childhood occurring in primary school. Um, but going to LSU, there's, the teachers were just pagans. A vast majority of the teachers are pagans. I can probably name one or two. I can name two teachers, Miss Habel and Miss Leonard. Yeah, I'm naming them because I want. If it gets round to people, I need everyone to know it. Like. <laughs> so, I'm going to name them, Miss Hague and Miss Leonard, were the two teachers that I thought, yeah, they're real. Apart from that, I think they were all ops. Every single teacher in that school that I encountered was op. Do you know what? Sister AD was a bit real as well. But anyway, I'm not going to get into this too much. <laughs> um, but yeah, they were all ops. So my head teacher in that school at the time, without going into too much DL, but there was something occurred. Toilets were studied. I didn't study toilets for whatever reason, despite there being like, however many thousands of people that could have done this, she's come to me to say it was me. Made me mop toilets. As I was mopping the toilets, she's like, hissing at me and things like, this job really suits you, you need to get used to this. I was 12 years old, you need to get used to this, this really suits you. This was the head teacher of the school. I bring up that story to say, that was a kind of very normal encounter in that school. I can't categorically say that that incident or every incident that I faced where I felt that I was being unfairly treated was directly related to race. I can say that there were definitely patterns of the racial demographic of students that encountered those kind of incidents that got into trouble. Now, growing up and working in school environments and being in staff rooms and hearing some of the disgusting things that are said about kids, I am like, you lot. What all racist majority of you were racist, and even if you weren't, even if you didn't know you were racist, you treated me differently, you were afraid of me in ways you penalized me differently to my white peers. So, yeah, that is me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Rebecca? Which I can really identify that listeners or even yourself might be like, Why are you asking me this? But the reason why I'm asking you this is because I feel like you probably have. for for a lot of your life walked with a unique lens so you would have been able to see like "Mm, that's unfair and that's racialized or that's fair from like your perspective who were the first allies that you feel like you could identify and and the first ops that you identified
2: yeah so I do think you're right I think our school, I'm not necessarily gonna name and shame it, you might have already done it already. Is It was a really interesting experience to be in our school as a white person. You probably know that because it was a real flipped demographic and white people were the minority in our school. So it was kind of, and I remember once one girl somewhere was said to have said, I would hate to be a white person in this school. It must be horrible. I didn't really think it was horrible. I was fine with it. But it was a really flipped situation. So that, for one thing, gave me a bit of a perspective into what it's like to be a minority. I mean, the only way it really damaged people, white people in our school, was that you just weren't cool. Didn't really have any other effect on you other than that. It was just like everyone thought you listened to rock music, which I didn't. So it was really annoying that anytime you know we had those parties in our classroom every now and again, <laughs> like obviously yeah. people with the with a minority, we'd get maybe one song in every five. And it always flicked like, Do you want to play some green day? <laughs> but all of this context is just to say that as you say, I have a slightly unique perspective on what you know the the situation can can kind of be like and it gave me a different window into things so I took this question and I kind of thought about it from the perspective of who was the first person I felt like an ally to if that makes sense maybe not individually but may made me realize how important it could be to be in ally. You might have already, Jade, you might have already guessed who I was going to say, but it's my, one of my oldest friends from school. It's a girl called Patrice. And we became best friends pretty much uh, as soon as we ended up sitting next to each other. And we randomly, we didn't know each other. We came from different primary schools. So quite early on in year seven, we had this uh, maths teacher who, if you got like certain amount of Points in a test. He let you move seats, and for whatever reason, I randomly moved to sit next to Patrice, even though I didn't know her. And we always say to this day, it was fate. I was meant to sit next to her. From day one of being next to her and being friends with her, we had this really special bond, and we started talking about race really, really early on. Um, mainly because we both had um, a bit of a fascination with America and American history. And my kind of interest in civil rights and all all of this kind of black rights and all of this started from a really young age. I kind of happened across um, my older brothers studying the civil rights movement. He was quite a few years older than me and he was studying it probably when I was maybe eight or something like that. And I happened to read a textbook and I remember reading about Martin Luther King and I was like young and I was like... God, this is really horrible. And like, you know how a child is so innocent to things like that. And from then on, I was like, God, that's awful. And it kind of had, it stayed in my head. So I always had this passion for... American history, civil rights, etc. And Patrice is exactly the same. So super early on when we first became friends, this is like year seven, the age of 11, we had all of these conversations about America and how we might go and live there one day and we were gonna, you know, set the world on fire. I was gonna be this human rights lawyer and she was gonna be a doctor and we were gonna somehow, I don't know, have some doctor lawyer surgery that only catered to poor people or who knows so she from really early on I felt comfortable to talk about stuff like that with her and that helped me to grow and learn more and also learn what it was like from the other perspective and I always felt very able to talk about anything and I felt that she felt equally as able to talk about anything race related to me and share even there were times in school where things would happen not necessarily to her but to other people maybe in our year and it was so obvious that someone had been singled out for their behavior because of who they were and we would talk about it really honestly and openly and there was never she never felt afraid to say things to me there was never a you know you know how some people are like oh you know those like white people and they, they don't even want to say the word white in case they're like oh god is it racist to say that but we have always been really really open and I wouldn't say that we ever had like a sit-down discussion that was like what can I do to help or you know anything like that but it was really natural and just hearing her experiences her everyday experiences and also again being in our school being able to see what it was like and know that there were differences in treatment that I personally felt could be attributed to race a lot of the time a lot of people pretend they didn't see it that way but it was obvious it kind of gave me this understanding from a young age and she was a very big part of that and we've I've definitely since got rid of that dream of going to America by the way. I think she has as well. (laughs) I mean I'd have a lot of work there unfortunately because you know civil rights is a big thing but no that dream is gone. (laughs) So I'd say she was probably the first definitely the first person that I kind of looking back on it now I see how I could have been an ally to her and more generally. And then, interestingly, in terms of... mm, (laughs) This was a more difficult question because it's quite personal. Because, again, I'm looking at it from an ally's point of view. So being an ally, who you come up against, a lot of the time is actually my own family. So I, again, because I had this kind of... Sense from a really young age that things were right and wrong, and at the school we grew up in, etc. I had a lot of black friends from being in secondary school, but I wasn't allowed to mix with them outside school ever until I was about probably until maybe year 11 when I was allowed to do stuff myself. So My parents wouldn't let me go to people's birthday parties. I mean, I didn't tell anyone this at the time when it was happening. So when I got invites to birthday parties, I would just have to say, oh, I can't, got to look after the dog, which we didn't have. And, you know, make up all kinds of excuses. And obviously this then got worse when I got into a relationship with my boyfriend, who's a black guy, shock. And we had to keep it a secret for years. We've been together 10 years now. For the first three years, it was a secret. I had to move out of my house in secret to live with him. And when it got discovered, it was hell. Things have never really been the same since. So for me, as an ally, and as a person who's had the experiences I've had, unfortunately, my kind of biggest opposition in my own family, which hasn't been great, but I think a lot of people who kind of maybe specific to interracial relationships, a lot of people would have experienced that. So I'm probably sadly not saying anything that's really unique to me.
1: Big up Patrice, by the way, big up Dr. Patrice. But I think that what you are saying that's unique is maybe um, your experience of being in school and just having black friends, the girls in school, and not being able to mix with them. Because I I think it's a bit unique that somebody's, yeah, racism will manifest with mm. other little girls who are in your child's class or what have you, you know. Um, yeah, but um, thank you for being yeah so open and stuff. My first ally, quote unquote ally... As you made me remember my own best friend when I was in the infants in primary school, her name was Anna, she was ginger as well. Anne Marie was and, uh, ginger. Not all white people no, no, are ginger. No, no, you and said
0: po- Poppy. Poppy Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. Don't <laughs> be rude. Sorry, just to clarify. Okay.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was <laughs> my best friend Anne Marie, but yeah, sorry, go on.
1: Anyway, my best friend in well in the infants was Anna. She was a ginger girl. Um and she was an ally. And I remember one of our one of my first encounters of racism was um I think we were in year two or year three, even. And there were two little girls who were in reception. One of them was was a blonde little girl, and the other one was um, I believe that she was Chinese or Vietnamese. Um and they were so cute, they were adorable. And me and Anna. would see them in the playground and be like you guys are so cute ah 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 and we would do this anytime we saw them and one day one of them said we don't like her because she's black pointing at me (laughs) and I remember Anna getting so angry and being like There's nothing wrong with black people. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with black people. She's just black. It's just the colour of her skin. You mustn't say that. And that was my first, yeah, remembering it. So I always remember the little girls, but I don't remember Anna's, or I don't often really hone in on Anna's reaction. But yeah, she was a real one. She was a real one. Um, And she was my best friend for years. Like, yeah, I used to go to her house. She used to come to my house and stuff. But yeah, I remember that. Um... Other allies in primary school were the teachers as well. And I just remember the warmth um, that they had when it came to me. Um, and I grew up in Islington um, and the school was majority white. Um, but there was just a warmth and a fairness and an, and an equalness that I experienced in that school. And I, would even, I could even identify being a teacher's favourite um, at school. As well. Um, and these were white women. And I just, yeah, I just felt like that was allyship. I don't know if maybe they had a sense of certain things that might have been going on at home. Yeah, I don't know what it was. Yeah, I can identify those women as allies, Miss Bennis particularly. She was my teacher in year one and year two. Or I would say my year four teacher who I really, really loved. I really loved my year four teacher. She was a young woman. And looking back now, I could see that she was like really like free, like free spirited and she liked traveling and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and she was probably only doing teaching just to like make some money at the time. She was definitely in her early twenties. But I remember she held us back in, um, yeah, she held us back one day Um somebody had misbehaved. So she was holding us back And I remember it was a really warm summer's day and my mum would always pick me up from school. I think up until like year five, my mum would always pick me up from school. So um, I don't know why I was so excited to like see my mum or whatever. I remember her holding us back and I remember me and my best friend by this time, who was a mixed race girl called Rakima, we got so annoyed that we were getting held back. And we started having a conversation between one another, and we were like, oh, like this isn't fair. We're getting held back. And then we started discussing how our mums are going to have to come into the playground to come and get us. So we were saying things like, yeah, like our mum's going to have to come and get us, and things like that, just innocently talking about how our mums are going to come and get us. The next day, the head teacher called me and basically asked me why I was threatening a teacher so our year four teacher went and reported me and Rakima based on the conversation that we were having that day so first thing in the morning the next day the head teacher called me in and asked me why I was threatening a teacher with my mum and what did I think my mum was going to do to my year four teacher and things like that and I remember did being really what you think
0: my mum was going to do to the year four <laughs> teacher what did you, are you what did you miss what do you think that my mum coming to collect me from the? what do you think she's going to do
1: I think thinking back now as an adult I think that was my first interaction with yeah an op because you're an op you're mad you're
0: actually mad <laughs> As we're sitting here and I'm hearing you both speak, I am getting rolled up, yeah, word to word. R A R L D up in a way that I didn't anticipate I would be. It's based on what Jade has shared about Rebecca, the pre-chat and the conversation that we had yesterday, and like just your vibe, I can gauge. Oh, this is this can be a really positive example of allyship and we can really kind of share some of positive examples of allyship, but relaying my story and hearing both of your stories about allies and art is just making me understand how young it is when these things start. So when we, we like thinking to your experience, Jade, as a eight year old or nine year old, or however old you were, you're nine years old. You are saying to your, t- you're saying to your friend, oh, and even if, for example, you are, even if say you were saying, oh, my mom's gonna, x, y or z, the reason why the person felt threatened is most likely because you're black working class. So there's a perception that is projected onto us as children, and I think working with children and young people. It's seeing the way those encounters and those experiences shape and mould the way we view and interact with the world, the way we take up space in the world. So like I said, with my first secondary school, which I absolutely hated and was eventually kicked out of, I don't believe if I didn't have that experience, I kind of think of what what my life could have been like. So the second secondary school that I went to, which was predominantly black, and I didn't really get into much trouble there much trouble there. (laughs) I always think what would my life look like if I went there from year seven, like what would be different if I didn't experience this marginalisation in kind of such an important school, such a mainstream and important um, aspect of life, like if that didn't occur from the age of 11, who would I be today? What different opportunities would I have? Always think about that and I think about that how young we're pigeonholed as black people how young we're put into kind of boxes where we or cages where we're not able to breathe we're not able to be and live and exist freely and um, that makes me angry so in as much as I know the conversation will get into positive allyship and examples of that and how to do that and how to engage with that I do want to kind of acknowledge and note it's infuriating to think about how young this starts I think as well I have the privilege of like
1: space to think about these different things which I don't think many people necessarily do so that feeling of like feeling like a threat feeling oppressed I think for a lot of people it's really latent and it's not something that you have the space or time to necessarily dissect so I very much identify that I have the privilege of dissecting that and coming to the conclusion that my yearful teacher is a madwoman. And my head teacher was a madwoman too for even entertaining the rubbish that he was entertaining, basically. But there's so many people that don't have that space and time. So I think it was really beautiful what you said, Rebecca, about um, that sort of discomfort that I think a lot of white people have when it comes to discussing matters of race, the fragility that they have because of their white skin, and just feeling, yeah, really uncomfortable, guilty too. Because they are white and so they automatically feel like they are going to be in the firing line when we discuss things like that. I think it's really beautiful that you were able to shed that from such an early age through your relationship with Patrice. And I feel like in terms of you, you yourself use the word growth, that you feel like that friendship has really nurtured your growth as a woman. I think it's such a beautiful thing and you have evolved into such an aware woman who is able to yeah be an ally and I think in your allyship you are able to stand in a unique position between black people and white people to help white people to also shed that guilt fragility but do you think that you have empathy for white people that have that that guilt fragility that they yeah I guess clutch onto
2: that is such an interesting question (laughs) I'm gonna try and not be PC but I have a tendency to just say things. I find the term white guilt really annoying, for one thing. I find it a really annoying term because I believe if white guilt was a real thing, racism wouldn't exist anymore. As in, if people genuinely felt guilty and all white people felt guilty about what had happened, we would already have made the change that needed to be made by now. So when it comes to what you were saying before about how sometimes when white people engage in conversations about race and it makes them feel in the firing line, I've never felt like that. And I think the reason why I've never felt like that is because I know I personally at least have never partaken in anything that has helped to continue it. Now, I not trying to say that from birth until now I've been out on the streets marching but I know that I've made a conscious effort from from when I first became aware of what racism was to not perpetuate it and to not allow it as much as I could when it happened around me so like I say from speaking up to members of my family which is hard I sometimes think of maybe some of the hardest conversations you can have sometimes be much easier to have conversation with strangers about these things because you never have to see them again but having conversations and difficult conversations about race and you know when people say things that are just not cool telling them and not being afraid to tell them I feel like I've done that quite naturally and kind of put myself in quite horrible positions at times to do it but I didn't do it because anyone told me to do it I did it because instinctively from being that little seven or eight year old who read about civil rights I just was like well, "This that's not nice like that was the child instinct in me that just stayed in my head from then on and I just always felt that I wanted to do something about it it's kind of followed me throughout my life and is now the kind of work I want to do. I want to, you know, work in human rights and I've kind of been part of trade unions and stuff like that. Again, you know, trying to do anything I can in any way I can to stop any kind of discrimination or any bad treatment of people for any reason. But I've always had a specific kind of attachment to racial issues. So I think I find myself really exasperated with white people who can't handle these conversations because, you know, unless you directly, unless Granddad Jim personally had, you know, a plantation or something like that, you yourself don't have to feel individually like you're being attacked you just have to realize that people who share the same skin color as you did very terrible things throughout history and we now live in a world especially in this country where the demograph is changing all the time and we're so much more diverse than we ever have been it's not the same country that it used to be and it needs to be a country that is welcoming of all people from all nations and needs to acknowledge and realize what has happened before and the hurt that has caused but it doesn't mean that you personally are being put on trial for things you just have to accept it and I don't know if there's if there's just something different in me that sees it is really simple I, I can't I, I find it so I can't even wrap my head around white white people find it so difficult to engage in conversations like that. And the only thing I would say is because maybe they know themselves, they have previously done things. So maybe I find it a bit easier to have conversations like that. Because I know honestly, in my heart, that I've tried throughout my life to do things to make it better. So maybe I don't carry any guilt. But even if you have, and you have previously, maybe not actively done racist things but if you've maybe stood aside and let racist things happen and you feel guilty about that own the guilt accept it and then change your behavior I just can't fathom why it is such a hard thing to talk about I I don't know I just find it
1: really enraging to be honest I did something that I never do recently And I'm even a little bit embarrassed to say, but here we go. (coughs) There's a content creator that I really like. I really like her. I really like her. And this was really early on. So a few days after the murder of Mr. Floyd in Minnesota, I really just wanted to get away from all of the content that was circulating on the web. And I decided to watch this lady's video. And it was about like, the Kardashians or something yeah it was about the Kardashians or something and she has really good perspectives on celebrities and she just talks about like their psychology and stuff I enjoy her content anyway but she started the video with whatever she had to say about the situation and Black Lives Matter and all of that sort of stuff and she started crying but as she was speaking I was just thinking you're chatting so much shit and you don't know that you're chatting so much shit And you don't know that what you're saying is actually a little bit dangerous. So I wrote a comment in the comment section on YouTube, which I felt like such a wanker for doing. But I thought this is important that you, yeah, know that you're just chatting shit because all of her subscribers were like, oh my gosh, yes, like, just, yeah, um, validating her bullshit, basically. The last thing I said was you really need to turn the lens on yourself. And I just think it's a really difficult thing to do as human beings, generally. Yeah, I think turning the lens on yourself and looking, instead of outwardly, looking at yourself is a really, really, really hard thing to do. So for me, I think that that is the number one thing that I think white people need to do. And through what you were saying, Rebecca, I feel like you probably unintentionally turned the lens on yourself at a really young age. And maybe that's why you don't have the same hangups that a lot of adults that are now facing or confronting the fact that, oh, I've got to turn the lens on myself that they're now facing. So I obviously know your trajectory in terms of, like, education and then work and your ambitions and your dreams and, yeah, your ambitions and your dreams and all of your intentions work-wise – um I wondered if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your professional trajectory.
2: Uh yeah, so my dream is to be a human rights lawyer and I've been working at it for such a long time. Um I kind of like I said earlier, I had my original dream back in year seven with Patrice for our extraordinary law slash GP surgery. I think I settled on wanting to do that. I don't know if your class did this, Jade, but our class in, our RE class in um, maybe like year seven, watched a documentary on the death penalty 14 days in May. I was so scarred by that. It was about um, a black man who was sent to death row and he was executed. And then it was found out that he was almost certainly innocent of what he did. Now, prior to this, I did actually used to be in favour of the death penalty. But my caveat for a lot of these things is, as I've explained to you what my family was like and what my background was like, we were a household that had newspapers like The Sun in it. I had slightly distorted views. And then I saw that and obviously, one of the highlights in that documentary was the racial aspect to it as well. So again, kind of added to stuff that I'd already had kind of an interest in. And I I remember I sobbed watching it when it was at the end and it kind of had a thing saying a little while after he was executed, evidence came forward that he was likely innocent. And ever since then, I was just like, however I can find a way to get into the system and do something to help it, I have to do it. So I've abandoned the old death row in America dream because I don't want to live there but I still and part of my kind of philosophy on how I think you can make a difference is I feel like even if over the course of my life I interact with and I have like a few cases where I've helped young black men take on the police or something like that that would be me feeling like I'd done something so I'm not saying that I want to kind of set the world on fire and be like Amal Clooney or some super famous high-flying lawyer kind of have settled that I want to work in this area and I want to work with the people that I most passionately want to help so I'm in a firm now just a very like bottom level position and i'm hopefully going to get there sometime soon because i'm like 28 now and i've been at this a really long time so hopefully in you know if you guys blow up and you have a massive podcast in 5 years i will hopefully be qualified and you'll invite me on again <laughs> so that's the aim
0: can i just say that um i think that there's so much as you're talking rebecca that's coming up for me in relation to um, opportunity. So for example, your brother's reading a textbook that you happen upon, which is an opportunity for you to learn something. Um, you go to a school with predominantly black girls, which is an opportunity for you to see the kind of, interact and see that, that oh, these these people are human beings, or these people are normal, like, mm-hmm. like me, um, you... And get you go, you get into a relationship with a black man again, which is an opportunity. So, there's all these opportunities for deepened understanding and learning, which have created kind of space for you to engage with race in a way that A, doesn't feel alien or intimidating, and B, you're able to see your position in relation to all of these things. Even though I know you did ask me, Jade, about um, empathy for white people. I'm going to answer it anyway. I do have some space for people that haven't had opportunities to engage with race critically. I do understand, for the same... So, for example... Without even getting into it. But I know that in my own life, there are views that I've held that I am not proud of. There are views that I've held, there's ways that I've lived my life, there's things that I've said based on my background and my upbringing that I'm not proud of. I'm not proud of those things. The person or the woman that I am today, I'm, I'm just extremely grateful for the opportunities that I've been given through, even if it's through like education and learning to think critically or through working in certain spheres or certain spaces where I've got access to people that I know that a lot of people where I'm from or the type of people that I grew up around don't have those opportunities and therefore still have very low ignorant views yeah um so I say that to say that I've got I've got some form of space for or so or I can empathize or I can understand that not everybody has had Opportunities when they where they can engage with blackness as or where they can engage with people that are othered as human beings. So and actually everything else in the world or in our society reinforces all of these negative ideas, all of these racist ideas. So if every institution, every kind of all the media, everything that you're engaging with, if all of all the things that you're engaging with about blackness are negative and are racist, then the likelihood is you're going to be racist cool park that for one side I do think that every single adult has obligations for me to unpick and unlearn that fuckery so yes yeah, so I so it's not to say that, that I feel that like Rebecca's example or, or Re- Rebecca's kind of life journey into understanding this stuff and your passion about race is a very unique and it's unique to London for example it's unique to a certain part of London it's unique do you know what I mean so it's very like okay cool I can see why I've had that experience, but I don't think that that is representative of the majority of white people in this country. In fact, I think it's the complete opposite. However, for those people that haven't had those opportunities, maybe from an early age or that haven't had those the level of exposure, they still have an obligation to unlearn the fuckery.
1: I agree with what you've said, Ez. I think that a lot of frustration and just the clear unwillingness to unpick and unlearn, I think, shows up. When we consider people that are in the public sphere, so like journalists, and I'm saying journalists because I'm just thinking about the whole LBC stuff that has come up yesterday. And actually, when I, <laughs> when I first read that Nigel Farage was leaving LBC, sorry, read that he had stepped down from LBC, I don't know why I thought that it said Nick Ferrari or why I initially thought Nick Ferrari um, and I was thinking, we're moving, like we're moving in the right. Di- we're really moving in the right, right direction because whilst Nigel Farage is very like frontish with his bullshit, Nick Ferrari is even more problematic than Nigel Farage. Sorry, that was just a little tangent. But yeah, um, yeah, I think that my, um, I hear you as in terms of having space for people that grew up in. Durham or York and just didn't have particular opportunities but I think that my frustration and stuff really comes in where people are worldly and that worldliness has afforded you a platform and you've not taken your platform yeah you've not taken that worldliness and your platform and the privilege that it affords you to go and do the dissecting and the unpicking Instead, what you're doing with that privilege and that platform and that worldliness is perpetuating ignorance and hate. I really
2: agree with that as well, actually. And I kind of I definitely realize that a lot of the way I am is because of growing up where I grew up and going to school where I grew up. But I think that's where stuff like the media and just kind of all ways that people would be able to interact with a bit more otherness without, you know, if they're not in a community that allows them to. So even if you have grown up in Durham and York and whatever, you still have Netflix and, you know, you still watch TV and you still read national newspapers. So all of those we're a bit more um, representative of what society is like and what the world is like because, you know, we are talking about an American kind of issue that's happening at the moment and we're based in the UK. But generally, the world is a lot more diverse and a lot more mixed. And if there were opportunities for people who don't in their physical everyday lives experience a lot of other, then there should be Ample opportunities in our super connected world where people are able to make all kinds of content, and you know, this goes into a much wider discussion if there should be more black creators of films and music, etc. etc. But that's where I think nowadays, I think that's why my sympathy again, my empathy is not really there because I think there are so many more opportunities now than there ever have been to find out about other races other people and to just look outside yourself a little bit more so I definitely completely agree with you but I think I don't know how much of an excuse that is anymore in this day and age not that I think you were trying to make it an excuse but that's where my lack of empathy comes from I think we've got more than enough tools at our disposal now if we want to use them to learn about other people's experiences. And also, I just, again, find it something that, it's like a switch in my brain that I don't know if I ever had, but I also just can't fathom the idea of why do you just not like people because they're different, just generally. That, so even if you haven't been exposed to them, why, why are you afraid of them? Like, I, that's just another thing that to me is really obvious, but.
0: Definitely not making excuses for that. like no time for, so if interesting, because I don't engage, really, with, with whiteness. I don't really engage with it. And I say that, and I do, because whiteness engages with me in the fact that I work in an organisation that is predominantly white. I get on buses and choose in a country with people that are predominantly white. I'm, do you know what I mean? So it's not that I don't, I don't encounter whiteness, um, but I don't, I, I actively don't engage with it, um, which, where possible, which I think um, works in my favor in some ways. Um, so I, I definitely am in an echo chamber of, get me, echo chamber, ha. sorry. <laughs> in an echo chamber of like, just intelligent black people. So even like, even like lower level, of the kind of lower level bs that happens in the black community i'm not really privy to some of these ideas that are being floated around um i for my mental health intentionally just yeah have blocked off from a lot of things and a lot of people when it comes to whiteness what is interesting I don't think that that's my, I just don't think it's my fight. So something happened this week um, where I was, I had to go to the hospital. Um, I had a hospital appointment <laughs> and um, I had the hospital appointment to get a blood test. I'm in this hospital, which is in Hampton area. So a very, like, affluent white area. Cool. In the hospital, a white man takes his, staring me down like proper staring me down this is a hospital room like a waiting room full of people yeah you you lot can imagine at the moment up and down hospitals are at the moment so there was very little order there's so there's like lots of people we're all kind of sitting socially distance. it's just but this man is staring at me like holding my my stare so I'm staring at him back like all right uncle we can do this today and then he asks me you know he says to me do you have a hospital appointment? No, do you? Have, I can't remember my phone. Something like, do you have an appointment? So I'm looking at him like, oh, maybe you're the receptionist, kind Like maybe you're trying to help the receptionist with their workload. I don't know. So you're you're asking me, do I do I have an appointment? So I'm looking at him. I'm literally just looking at him, and then he's like, oh, because you know, you're not allowed in the hospital if you don't have an appointment. <laughs> and i know me of old like me of old there's a few routes i could have taken a different past versions of self i could have got violent a very very past version of myself another past version of myself could have got very like academic and like oh you aren't good. you need to whereas the version of myself that i exist as today it's laughable you're a mug you're an idiot you're an idiot, but it's fine. So I, I kind of bantered it off a little bit. I was like, I'm very, very grateful for the education. Um, obviously I'm sitting here as a black girl in a tracksuit that like, I completely understand that it's unlikely that you think I know that we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So I'm very grateful for the I'm very, very grateful for the education and for the knowledge that you're sharing with me. And then I asked him if he listens to podcasts, because again, we're, we're in the biz- biz- business of asking random questions, isn't it? So you ask me if I've got an appointment, fair question. I'm asking if you listen to podcasts, fair question. And um, he was just staring at me again didn't understand why. I just thought oh there's a really good podcast called the echo chamber and if you listen to episode 21 I think you would really gain from that and I thanked him again and then I moved seats and I was just kind of sitting there kind of making jokes like, I'm really grateful that so I was speaking I, I was like I'm really grateful for benevolent whites benevolent whites that really care to educate me and my people because I wouldn't have known that we we're in a global pandemic if my man didn't come and tell. So, so I'm very grateful to Benevolent White. And then there was a... Uh, I, I'm, he looked Eastern European, I don't know. He was he was white, but he looked Eastern European. And he was just laughing his head off. Because I just kept... And anyone that knows me knows, I'm just... I'll keep going. So I just kept I kept going. I kept going until they called me. I just kept... Every so often, I'd be like, he's such a nice man. That like, I just... Like, and I was so... On the topic of allies, I'm sitting there... And in a room for the people, there was at least 12, 13 people in this room. It's silent in the room. You've heard this exchange. Not one of you thought, oh, I'm going to say something. Not one of you thought that. and I just, and because of those people, like, so I thought that I would be more actively engaging with whiteness and with allyship and with all of these ideas if I felt it was a, a battle that I could win. Like, if I felt that actually there was enough, there were enough allies for us to engage and do something some productive in that, in that area. But I just genuinely, so um, Kehinde Andrews, um, an academic at Birmingham City University, wrote about the psychosis of whiteness. And ever since I read that paper, the academic journal, ever since I read that, my whole life has changed because it just gave language to something that the whiteness as a a construct, the psychosis of whiteness, it's mad, like people are mad, like people are mad, people are under this spell. And for me to engage with it, it feels like I'm engaging with madness. So for me to attempt to to say anything to that man or to to hold anyone in that room to account because you're all you're all mad you're all complicit in this because nobody has thought oh I'm gonna say anything to defend this woman and I get it that's for different reasons like some people might have really when some people might really be kicking themselves and because I said that I made, made sure I plugged the podcast very loud so some people might even be listening to this and please reach out if you were because I said it very loud I said Listen to the echo chamber. So, if some people might have like in their quiet corners walk away from that and think, "Oh, what could I have done differently And I'm not saying that they like everyone in the room was a horrible person or everyone. I'm not even saying that that man's views are representative of everybody. What I am saying is, I don't have the strength to engage with my brother and his and his people. Them. I think that that is it's a white people thing. So, I think that this is where for the allies for the people that do class themselves as allies, or do feel that they're allies? That is you lot's job. It's got nothing to do with me to engage with mad white people and try and try and prove my worth or humanity to them. I don't have any desire. At least I don't care for white people. I don't. Yeah, I don't care for engaging with mad white people or whiteness as a construct. No time.
2: I don't blame you, and I completely. As you first started speaking, you were saying you don't really engage with whiteness. In my head, I was like. But why should you? Because if we're in a society where it's still whiteness is still something that only gives negative results, why should you engage with it? It it doesn't make any sense at all. And that's where I think, and it's why I've always felt, it is white people's responsibility to deal with this in terms of, I personally don't consider myself to have white privilege. Now, what I mean by that is, as I've explained, the background I grew up in, where I grew up in, you can kind of probably guess the kind of socio-economic background I have, not from money. And I've had the same kind of, I feel like people who went to our school would have had the same, I didn't have any advantages to try and get into workplaces and stuff like that. I'm saying all of this to put it in context that bearing all of that in mind and feeling that I don't really have a position of privilege that can give me like a springboard to do anything quicker I still acknowledge that just being white itself is an advantage and that's why I've always felt that the responsibility is on white people to kind of now I know it's a term called allyship I didn't actually know it was this was a thing align themselves with even if it's just their one black friend that they have and actually Listen and empathize and that's what allyship is all about. I read up on it specifically so I'd know It's about using the fact that you are of the group that isn't being demonized to further the voices of those who are So as an example In our school whenever I kind of would have sensed that there were certain things that were happening that were more because people were black and teachers were singling them out, I would join a conversation with them and listen to what they were saying. And obviously it would rile me up a lot of the time. I'd be like, this is so blah, 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 blah. And even if it didn't result in anything, because I remember one specific instance that always sticks out in my head is, um, you know when you have to get predicted grades for uni and. In our school, I don't know if every school was like this, but there was a little bit of bargaining with teachers that you could have. Now, as an example, in our, uh, I think it was our psychology class, my AS grade was a C because I kind of did really bad in one of um, the exams. And I needed all As for my offer. So I, you know, talked to the teacher and I was like, I really need an A, please will you predict me an A? And they predicted me an A didn't get it in the end just so you know the same I think around the same time everyone got told what their predicted grades were going to be and I remember Patrice and some of the others in our class in our psychology class at that time they were talking as we were on their way out I heard some of them say oh I only needed a B and I got a C um but she wouldn't you know move up my grade or I got a D and I really needed a C etc and every story I heard they only needed one grade more and they didn't get it and I needed two and I did so I made a point of telling them all that and saying this is so bad like I again it was one of those things that could have taken it to the teacher and you'd never be able to prove that it was that way you know they would make up any kind of excuse, but I in my heart felt like there was a very strong correlation with the fact that I got predicted two grades higher and they were struggling to even get predicted one grade higher. So I made a point of making sure that they knew that had happened so they could then use my example to go back and see if it made a difference. Can't really remember if it did or not, but it was where I felt that when I perceived an injustice based on race, I wanted to try and use my position that I felt had been more you know I benefited from it because of that to help and try and find a way around it again I don't know if it was successful so this story isn't really like a a lesson in whether it worked or not but it's just kind of to say that I've always felt like you have to use the advantage that you have because what I think is an issue when white people don't align themselves with this movement is that it's so much easier then for wider society and the media to just be like, oh, it's just those troublesome black people making noise. And then when they're on their own and you're on your own protesting or on your own raising awareness of things, so much easier to discount what's been said as people just trying to cause trouble. Whereas I think, and I've always felt that the more white people that you can have in and actually actively helping and actively, even if it's just stuff like, you know, making posts on social media, which I've been doing for years, which I know make people feel uncomfortable. And I've got into arguments and debates with people who, you know, deny that racism (laughs) exists and you're like, okay, it's to me, the important thing is it stops People being able to paint it as some kind of um, wild aggressive minority of people who are just making noise for no reason I feel like if in this country where white people are still the majority of society we join with that message and we enhance it and use the position that we have to say there is racism this happens and it's wrong it might be a bit you know airy fairy and it might be a little dream world I live in that it will happen but I feel like it's at least something that can be done to stop the movements being discounted and to you know try and change the narrative and and it's more that it's just widely accepted that this is wrong it's not just people making noise and causing trouble and being out on the streets rioting etc and I remember for example Selvesy, so I grew up in Tottenham and I was still living in Tottenham when the riots happened in 2011 and I remember getting into a good old Facebook debate with um, a friend of mine actually because I was making posts that were like I don't think I was quite as eloquent back then as I am now but along the lines of it's no wonder people are rioting, Tottenham's been abandoned for years, you know we had riots back in the 80s which was before I was born so I don't know what it was like but Tottenham had not changed, it's still rough, it's still horrible, you um, can put a lick of paint on things, it didn't make any difference, there still was not very much investment in schools etc and I had people like friends of mine, white friends of mine be like well I'm from Walthamstow and there's no investment in Walthamstow and you don't see me going up and down the street looting and robbing Tesco and you know the most ridiculous comments and I was just like and I tried to you know give a bit of an education on why they were being stupid to be honest and again it's just a small thing but those are the kind of things that I think white people should engage in and again If To kind of go back to what we said before, if I had this white guilt, so to speak, I'd probably have said what I had to say. And then when someone tackled me on it, I'd probably be like, oh, no, you're right. Sorry, I'll delete it and I'll stop offending everyone because I'm clearly wrong. So I think that's where my understanding and what my belief in what being an ally is, is using the fact that you just through either your name on a job application form or your face walking through a door will not receive and have the same perceptions of you. And you need to use that little bit of power. And some people have a lot more than others because they have money and they have connections, etc. But even if, you know, you, you take it from my point of view where it's, uh, I don't have all of that, but I have the color of my skin and my name to, to use that to really try and hone in all of these messages. And I'm, again, I said before, I'm a believer in every little thing you can do can make a difference. So again, people shed their white guilt and actually turned it into little actions. This probably would have been solved a very long time ago.
1: The school example that you used, Rebecca, is so interesting for so many reasons, but mainly because, so our school made a big deal out of GCSE results and we had a prize night every year and the year 11s would all attend prize night or the yeah those that had done their GCSEs would all attend prize night and get a prize and they categorized us and they had like the top three best like GCSE results and stuff and I would just remember that Patrice and Helena were the highest achieving girls in our year. And they were two black girls.
2: (laughs) I was next. (laughs) Okay. Okay.
1: So I always look back at our school. And for so many years, I had really good things to say about our school. But now I don't. I think that they really didn't nurture critical thinking in us they really didn't want us to think critically they wanted us to like completely toe the line follow a uniform trajectory and just they really you know um i think so sociologists say that school is like the pipeline to to like the factory basically to the workplace they were churning out good workers and so for that reason i can see how we were not necessarily in a position to be able to argue with that psychology teacher and be like, you are being unfair and actually let's look at the GCSE results and see, do you know what I mean, what people's actual capabilities are. That really struck me. I'm remembering something, Ez. Um, I'm remembering how we felt. So me and Ez went to a conference last year. We went to a conference and it was about county lines. A man um, presented his research on estates and me and Ez, yeah, we ripped him apart. (laughs) We ripped him apart at that conference because it was just so evident. Perhaps what he may believe and what other people might be telling him may have been some semblance of allyship was actually white saviorism, which is also very dangerous. And I just think that um my perception of yourself, Rebecca, and yeah, my understanding of you, my perception of you, there's an authenticity that I think I really think as you've talked about your trajectory in more detail, maybe comes from how natural it has been like your engagement with these things. Um and maybe also how non-academic and how friendly it has been. So it's you had a friend that yeah, you had um you've had a partner for 10 years and what have you. But yeah, that's just I just remembered that and that just really came to me because me and Ez were really just like affronted by this man chatting so much shit um about estates and essentially what his research was saying was like yeah, how can estates be better, quote-unquote, better places, I guess, Um, and the decline of estates and all of that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I just felt like it was just really, like, dangerous, what he was saying. A lot of what he was saying was really dangerous.
2: I was just going to say that kind of um, reminds me of one of the things I wanted to make sure I did say um, was that, like I I think I said already, I hadn't heard of the term allyship until you told me it. (laughs) So I'm not really big on terms and things like that. I feel like terms get invented so white people can say they do things, to be honest. But I made a point of looking it up and seeing what it was about. And one of the things that I think is really important is that trust your instinct as to whether someone is an ally. Don't let them tell you they're an ally. So what I mean by that is... um, I've come across people who use the I've got black friends defense in life all the time. And I've even known people who are in interracial relationships who have said in conversations just randomly that, you know, they were sitting in a car one time and a group of black guys were nearby. So they locked their car and they drove away. And I remember being like, you're in a relationship with a black guy. How can you do that? And they were like, oh, yeah, but I was just scared. And I was like, but what if your boyfriend was that person and they walked down the road and people did that? How would you feel? And it was like, oh, well. Uh. And that was a big eye open for me in realising that just because people either have black friends, are in interracial relationships, call themselves allies, or even if they work in areas that lend itself to being you know you would hope anti-racist or you know if they work in charity sector or even in you know my area human rights people are only allies through their actions and i'm not saying that you necessarily have to be someone that is out protesting or directly getting into arguments with your friends about things but you can't say you're an ally, and and you are. That's not how it works. And I think there's a real um, danger that allyship tr- kind of flows into white saviorism, And that is a, a major issue. And it's a thing where, you know, white people think that they can kind of come in and and go oh it's okay I'll sort it out I'll, I'll do this I'll do that and that's when I was you know saying earlier that I think the role that white people play is to kind of use their um you know privilege to help it's next to people it's not putting themselves in front of black people and leading the way it's being next to them and using yourself as a kind of, not a shield, but kind of a shield. And what I mean by that is, like I say, people try and um, discredit people who, you know, are out at Black Lives Matter protests, for example, right now. And, you know, just generally try and discredit any kind of movement. They're like, oh, you know, this country isn't racist, blah, blah, blah. And it's white people's responsibility to be there to stop that happening now i say that but i have one other slight issue in that uh, there was an mp maybe last week kemi badenoch and she made a point of saying and she is also the equalities minister i mean she's a tory so uh, she's a black woman just to make it clear i'm bringing this up for a reason and she made a point of saying um the UK is one of the best places in the world to be black, right? Now I looked into her background as if I Wikipedia'd her. I didn't like Spider. And um, her background is um, in terms of like professionally, is um, she's a banker and she's been in wealth management, etc. etc. So again, this is my perception is that her experience of life is very different from a lot of black people's experience of life, right? And for her to use her privileged position, and what I mean by that is as an MP, to discredit what the wider black community is saying about their experience of being black in the UK, is she an ally? And she's a black woman. So I'm not bringing this in to take away the race point. I'm making a wider point that you can't, you can't always predict who your allies are gonna be. And there's not a guide to being a good ally. Just because you're black, just because you're a black woman, doesn't mean every black woman is gonna align with both of you, for example, and say things that you agree with and perpetuate the ideas that you want them to have. And at the same time, just because a white person tells you they're an ally, it doesn't mean they are. And even if they, have, even if they have similar experiences to me in their life, there will still be people, and I know of people in interracial relationships who will still, like, share posts on Facebook from, like, Britain First, and, you know, and you just kind of think, how, how do those two go together? So it's just a wider point that I wanted to make that to talk about allyship I would say the important thing is, even if it's just on an individual level, if you have an instinct about someone and you, you instinctively feel like they're an ally, go with your gut. Don't let them tell you they're an ally and then they'll prove you wrong a little while later by crossing the road when your brother walks by.
0: Both of you have made some really like, my brain is really ticking because I think what both of you have spoken to is where we have power and where we have privilege. So I think that, um, so for example, Rebecca, you are able to identify areas of your life where maybe you, ha- you don't have privilege or you haven't been privileged. That in some ways, I think there's a proximity to, to an underprivileged. And I think when I think about that like growing up in ends, and I think about a lot of the white people or Turkish people or just certain, or even like Latino people that I've grown up around, there's a proximity to being underprivileged that, that affords them, sorry, a proximity to blackness. So being underprivileged in some ways affords them a proximity to blackness. It, it, it affords them, uh, there's a bridge there. There's like, okay, we can relate on this. And I do think that there are, obviously we know where cl- there are ways that class and race intersect. And yada 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 yada. We can go into all of that. Um, I do think that it's really important to not conflate those, those two things. Um, and I think that when when I think about my experience of the world, so in my household, for example, my mum raised four children who present very differently in the world. So with what you were speaking about, Jade, uh, when we had to bed up that, that brother in the university conference that day, I know that there is a way that I present that further kind of amplifies my underprivilegedness or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So I know that there's a way. So I'm earlier on in that same conference, someone that was like doing a call and response kind of thing. And I don't what's that dance move that the kids do again? What's it called, Jase? I can't remember but we were doing team. I can't remember. There was one da- there's one dance move. I cannot remember gun lean, was it? Gunly there, but So that was so uh, for whatever reason, he's part of his presentation involves the gun lean and so we're up and we're dancing and Jade Jade and I being Jade and I are doing too much in it, so we're we're there, we're excited, we got, got a bit overexcited, the guys invited us to the front to gun lean and we've gone to go and gun lean. I know a lot of my black friends would never ever and just to be clear the guy that was whose presentation it was was a black man so it's not that um some white man said come and become these for us and we were like yeah, yeah yeah no um it felt like but i know that i have a lot of friends that wouldn't do that wouldn't enjoy wouldn't kind of present themselves or allow themselves to be seen particularly in an academic space in that way because they know the association's that are, we already have as black people and they don't want to, they want respect for it, they want respect. Me and Jade, we don't really care for the respect <laughs> of the women in that way. Do you know what I mean? We don't really, or we, like, yeah. So we and Jade went there, we did our gun lead, And I know that his reaction and response to, to our, when we were able to then kind of confront him so articulately and, and so kind of, and back it up with stats and this and that, I know that there is he he filled he felt a type of way, be, partly because of the type of black women that he he and again I'm I'm projecting all of this. This might just be all in my imagination. He might have just been having a bad day, not had breakfast. I don't know him in it. But again, the way that I'm looking, the way that I see the world, my experience of the world, I feel that his the what kind of rubbed salt in the wounds was the type of black women that he probably assumed were were confronting him. Um, I also got a sense and a feel that he was around a lot of people that felt grateful to his so-called allyship. So I felt that he'd never, though it felt as if he'd never been confronted, the way that he responded to us made me feel that he had never been confronted in this way um, because he probably genuinely did have good intentions. He probably really was from not from, but probably like immersed in the community, whatever, doing his ethnographic study, those things are true. And I think sometimes we think that, so for example, Rebecca, in one way, you definitely are not, you don't have privilege in, in the in sense of maybe economically or materially, but by virtue of your skin color, there is a privilege there. Um, and those two things can intersect. This white man, for example, he may really, really have had good intentions, may really care, may really want to do well and want to, like, support um, the Black community or the working class community or estates or whatever it is. He even started his his speech with, oh, I bet you're asking me what, sorry, I'm I'm just getting sidetracked because it's coming back to me and I'm getting vexed again. He said he started his speech with, I'm a middle class white man from the sticks, where, whichever enter geographical location that is middle class and white. And I guess you're I bet you're wondering why I'm here or why I've got what affords me um, the right to talk on these issues. Then he said, I'm from a single parent home.
1: But we beefed more, multiple people oh, there that was day. That's another mm. one. Yeah,
0: different oh, one. Because yeah. that's my thing. The whites stay showing themselves up. You know, that's the thing. They stay. So there was. Sorry again. I, the whites stay acting up. But who oh, will park that one? Sorry, I just it just came. I had a flashback at the rage. that, but that was a that serious day.
1: beef that we had that day,
0: though, with that one. Yeah, we beefed. We beefed a couple of them, man. And but anyway, I say that to say we hold privilege in different ways. So even, for example, I am very aware on this kind of, all of this race talk um, that has been sparked from police brutality and I am very aware that as a woman, as a woman that presents in a certain way or that can talk in a certain way, um, I am very aware that there is a certain privilege that I have when it comes to talking about my interactions with the police. I've seen them firsthand and that's not to say that women are not being affected by police brutality or women are not being unfairly treated—that's not to say that that's not true. I'm aware that there are different places where we hold power and privilege, but even that like with the Kemi women that you mentioned, you're a pagan Kemi. You are. You're a pagan because you're dumb, but also you've probably you've very definitely experienced racism in your life. Do you know what I mean in a way that someone Jeremy Corbyn hasn't, and and I might be on I might be on board with Jeremy Corbyn and his views and all of that. Um, and he might be the perfect, quote-unquote, ally, but you walk through the streets, you walk through the world, you encounter the world in a way that affords you a privilege that Kemi doesn't, even if she is a pagan. And I think it's just not conflating things, being really aware and each individual working to understand our individual privilege, our individual power, our collective privilege and our collective power, and where those different things overlap. And I think when I think about what I what I want or desire from allies, sometimes, like you said, sometimes it's going to mean, mean you walking beside me. Sometimes it's going to mean you walking in front of me as a, as a shield um, and taking the shots that I'm, I can't take. Sometimes it's going to mean you walking behind me. Um, sometimes you're not meant to be in the room and you just need to just not even be in pro- that around this thing because it's not for you. I mean and I think it's just when I think about what I want from an ally um I I just want you to to learn and again it's a learning you're not always going to get it right um we had a team meeting at work this week and um, one of my colleagues the colleague that I I really get on with at work I really like I really really get on with this, this colleague and I could see her on the zoom and I could physically see her discomfort I could see how uncomfortable the conversation was making her. And she's someone that I would I would consider to be an ally. She's someone that actually so it, and people are at different stages of it basically. So some people are like have still got unlearning. Some people have still got shedding of shame and guilt and all of those things. That's their business. You got to deal with that. That's not my business. However, I do think that when I think about what I want is learn the journey to learning which what role to play. So learning when you're beside me, when you're in front of me, when you're behind me, when you're not in the room. And when I think of what I want from an ally, it's just learning the journey to to which role to play and when.
1: I'm really, really like
0: what you said there. Yeah, you made a really important and
1: um, which has, I've always thought about the ways in which race and class intersect. And um, I think that that's uh, a discussion, a really interesting discussion and topic for another day. I remember going toe-to-toe with many a black people and we're both, we're arguing different sides of defence, race and class. Um, And actually no one's right. Similar to you, I've had a really interesting week. I always find it interesting. Um, I work at a university um, in the politics department, which is all white bar one um, man who is South Asian. Obviously a lot of conversations and discussions being had as of late. One yesterday was about decolonizing the curriculum. I could just really pinpoint and see and dissect where people were chatting shit. They were just chatting so much shit. Just saying really dumb things so somebody decided to come out and say that um, they have a Jamaican niece and I don't know why she said that. <laughs> it was his face. <laughs> did you congratulate know. her?
0: <laughs> no, it's the question. Did you congratulate her?
1: So, we obviously are on video call, and I was shaking my head for so much of what people were saying. I was visibly you, shaking my head. Why did you
0: shake your head? She let you know about her. You should have <laughs> said, Congratulations, fifth, even thumbs up, even use the Zoom clap symbol <laughs> because that's what she wanted, didn't it? So, give people what they want
1: just saying mad things and bearing in mind, I'm a somewhat new member of staff, Um, but I, yeah, I was just shaking my head. Jamaican niece, (laughs) Um, somebody else has now come to report that they're uncomfortable teaching African politics because they're white, just mad things are happening. Um, And I think that a common thread in what you have said which felt really conclusive, actually, when you said it, was um, that listening is really important. Listening and affording Black people the, I guess, the respect that they are the masters in terms of knowledge in this thing, So they, respect them enough to listen to when they're asking you to be in front. Respect them enough when they're asking you to stay by my side. Respect them enough when they're asking you to be behind. Respect them enough when they're saying this one is not for you. I think that that is very much a common thread in that it is completely like almost a new world order when when we're now confronting the fact that Black people have, have the not the capacity, capacity is the wrong word, but when black people need to tell white people what to do, what they need to be doing sometimes, um, and need to correct them, need to be in a position of correcting white people, um, I think it is very difficult and very uncomfortable. But I think in order for allyship and just a complete restructuring for all of that to, to come through um, and change things structurally and also on an individualistic level, I think that it's pertinent, basically.
2: That blew my mind. What you both just said put together, it was just like a perfect summary of exactly what allies should do. And it is also, like you say, it's about knowing when to step back. There's been plenty of times where, especially recently, where there's been like conversations work-wise or generally about what do we do about the situation? I mean, like, we didn't already know about it, but let's not go into that one. And I, I've always felt like, personally, sit back, let the people who are affected by this and who, as you say, know about it, speak first, and then add your input, or don't, you know? But one thing that is obviously hard is that you still find, well, at least I know in the workplaces I've been in so far, black people are still a minority. And it's really hard to do that, to be in, you know, even if it's on a Zoom call, it might be a teeny bit easier now than being in a physical room with people. But I can only imagine that being the one person in the room, like, you know, in your situation, Jade, and they're like, so let's let's deal with this whole Black Lives Matter thing. And they're all kind of looking around and then you're just like, So am I going to be the, you know, the one who suggests our whole department's response or, you know, what policies we're going to take forward or whatever. So, and this kind of, again, is another more wider conversation about how I'm kind of sceptical. And I had a post on Facebook the other day about why there's so much attention right now to Black Lives Matter and to this situation, given that, you know, as someone who's been following this kind of, especially when it comes to police brutality, have kind of been following cases for years, and not to diminish what happened to George Floyd, but there have been worse, worse instances in terms of the brutality or in terms of the outcome You know, there have been younger people affected and I'm a little bit sceptical that the only reason there's so much attention to all of this right now, especially from white people and from the media and from Hollywood and whatever, is because we're all at home with nothing better to do, to be honest. So I feel like it's, you know, I've been a bit kind of grumpy about it in a way because I've been, I want to be hopeful that people who are saying things now that have never said anything before. And I've seen a lot of that, you know, people who I'm like, oh, really? Ooh, okay, interesting. And wondering if when we all are allowed to go shopping again and allowed to go to the cinema and whatever, and we're allowed to go back to normal, will the conversation continue? And I guess in some ways that's where allyship is important because maybe now we try and capitalise on these new allies that are suddenly going to have popped up on our social media and find ways to keep them as allies or turn them into genuine ones if they're now just you know posting a hashtag because it's the thing to do so I think it's a good time to hopefully find allies but how to maintain them and ensure that this conversation that's like really taken off doesn't just you know disappear in in a couple of months time
0: I think that you've I think that's such an important point that you've made and I genuinely do think that that is what in terms of the allies organizing amongst themselves right now I think that that is what a conversation that needs to be had um for non I, well i speak to myself because there are some black people that might actually think that that's their role and might want to do that and but that, again that's cool but I, from from me from every perspective i think actually now is the time for white people that are seeing their white friends or non-black so it's not yeah again we're gonna we've spoken very much about black and white in this um black and white terms in this specific episode this yeah there's all other issues when it comes to other brown or um non-white people um but that's another conversation but i think that now is the time for people that have been engaged and do have a level of understanding of how to do allyship quote unquote well um now's the time for those people to really support people that are at their entry point now because again we've we've all different people have different entry points into the importance of this issue um and yeah I agree I think that some people for some people this is performative um for some people this this is like they're bored at home and they are what they're then yeah they're now yeah there's something to do or there's something to whatever call like whatever it is but I think that um people that have been engaging with critical race thinking um, and activism I think that now is the time for non-black people to take on that responsibility and kind of support um other non-black non people um, that are at their entry point now.
1: I agree with a lot of what both of you have said um and I think that that is a good note to end on really yeah I've very much enjoyed this conversation and I'm really grateful of course to yourself Rebecca for coming on being really open and really honest thank you guys for
0: listening yeah thanks guys for listening white man from Royal Free Hospital if you took my advice and listened (laughs) to the podcast I will accept um, a monetary apology um, if you email us our emails on our socials if you email us I will send you my details to send the money thank you Rebecca for coming on thanks guys for listening thanks for having me I can't come here and die. I can't come here and live. <clears throat> Got all this shit on my mind. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Work ain't paid me in time. My brain just ripping my mood. O2 just cut off my
2: life.